Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And this week we are watching In the Heat of the Night. An African-American police detective is asked to investigate a murder in a racially hostile southern town. Yay. <laughs> Lives up to that bio. And that is an accurate statement of what occurred during this film. This is a good movie. It's pretty good. And a bold movie for its time, even now. I mean, not, not now. Uh, it's not so bold anymore. It's bold in its frankness, though. Like, I, I feel like a lot of movies that explore these topics now try to whitewash it a lot more than this movie does. Yeah, but now we tell these stories and, like, see how much better it is, and it's not. Oh, of course. So that's why this of the time was so in your face and groundbreaking, and that's good. That needed to happen, but like, we don't need any more of these fucking stories. We don't need any more. Like, I'm glad that this movie existed in yes. time. Yes. And is totally worth watching now. And I think that's just what caught me so much about it was like, wow, they don't pull any punches. I don't want any more movies about teaching white people to treat people who aren't white, straight white dudes. That they deserve to be treated like people. I'm I'm really sick of that storyline. Get over yourselves. I don't care. Like, I'm just, I'm over it. What's great about this movie is it doesn't really do that. No, it doesn't. But that's where the story is in, you know, 2020. That's how they remake this. Or that's the perspective they take. Do you feel like it's hard to watch this movie with all of that context? With, like, having seen Green Book? Oh, totally. And you can't watch this anymore and, like, even appreciate the the different stance that they're clearly trying to take. Yeah, like, th- this is just, like, Sidney Poitier's great. White people suck. Like, yeah. white people are the worst. Like, that's, that's, that's my big takeaway from watching this film. I was like, we fucking suck. White people suck. White people suck and the South sucks, man. Yeah, and unfortunately, we're two white people from the South. Yep. So that's fun. I mean, there are pockets of the South that are amazing and wonderful. Yes. But overall, a positive reflection of this film. Yeah, pretty good, yeah. <laughs> the budget for this movie was $2 million. That roughly equates to $15,410,000. Let me tell you, they squeezed every inch of that budget. It's still it's still a small budget. It really is. But, but it looks amazing. It does look really good. And I will say that there weren't like they didn't go to any like fancy locations and they didn't go to a ton of locations either. So like they used their budget well. Yeah. They were very smart and economical in how they shot things mm-hmm. and how they staged it all to make it look really good. It's gross was twenty four million four hundred and seven thousand dollars. A rough equivalent of two hundred and nineteen million. Mm-hmm. Yep. So we're talking about an indie that could, a prestige indie, basically. Loves it. In order to get that budget, Walter Marish, the producer, had to use incredibly creative accounting tactics because he had to prove to United Artists that they could make a profit on this movie without playing in the South at all. Oh, interesting. At the time, they were concerned that there would be riots over this movie. So, okay. Just for a little bit of context, this is the same year that Guess Who's Coming to Dinner came out. Yeah. So we talked about that movie last year. Mm -hmm. And during the filming of that was when the Loving versus Virginia ruling was coming down. 
So yeah, that makes total sense that like, this is a very hot issue, even more so with that pending. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Well, and you know, like they had to anticipate this isn't gonna go to this a certain market. There had been race riots the year before. Yeah. And guess who's coming to dinner takes the very white liberal stance. Yes. And tries to view it through that lens and is able to explore some different things. But this movie just goes fucking head on into the absolute dirt pile of racism. Well, you're pretty sure of yourself, ain't you, Virgil? Virgil, that's a funny name for a boy that comes from Philadelphia. What do they call you up there? They call me Mr. Tibbs. Mr. Tibbs! Well, Mr. Wood, take Mr. Tibbs, take him down to the depot, and I mean boy like now. Oh, yeah. Like, there's definitely, like, a lot of fucking racism, and guess who's coming to dinner? But it, it it's a little more complex. It's it's still bad and awful, but yeah. it's presented in a more complex manner. This is not. No. There there's no hiding. It's, they just shove it in your face. Which and, is which is good. It's good in the sense that you have to recognize that that's how it was then, and that's how it is a lot of times in a lot of places now. Yeah. I don't want to minimize like the pain and like the fear and it's horrible and it's awful. And that's why white people are the worst. I know. Again, they thought there was going to be possible violence and trouble. But to their surprise, this movie did play in the South and there were no complaints over it. Hmm. I love that. I mean, that's that's good. A writing. It is based on a novel by John Ball, who... This was his biggest major work. I don't know if he wrote any other novels, but like this was the big deal. But this story had some lasting impact. There are two sequels to this movie. They Call Me Mr. Tibbs <laughs> and The Organization. And in both of those, Virgil Tibbs is now a police sergeant in San Francisco. Okay. Solving murders. Okay. And then they did a TV series with Carol O'Connor yeah. playing the Gillespie role. That comes back to Sparta mm -hmm. and is just a police procedural set in and around Sparta. And I believe I, I, I've seen like bits and pieces because it was on like afternoon TV on the mm -hmm. weekends and stuff. I feel like they touched on some of those same themes, but in a very like network TV way. Yeah, same with you. I, I think I've seen like bits of it on reruns. I remember it, you know, it being a big deal for Carol O'Connor. Yeah, well, it had a seven-year run, so I mean, it, it lasted a while. Our screenplay is by Sterling Siliphant. Before this, he did Village of the Damned, Naked City, and created the television show Route 66. Okay. After this, he did Charlie Marlowe, Murphy's War, The Poseidon Adventure, Shaft in Africa, The Towering Inferno, and the Sylvester Stallone arm wrestling classic, Over the Top. Over the Top. <laughs> I think it's crazy that I've actually seen that and you haven't. What do you think about the writing of this movie? It's a little uneven. Like, I I like the story. I do. I don't like the dialogue. Really? Yeah, I don't really like the dialogue. I don't know. I think the dialogue's some of the best part. I would contend that there's maybe some hamminess in the acting. Uh, no. But I, it could be clunky dialogue that's causing I that. feel like the dialogue gets clunky because I feel like this needed a lot more cursing. <laughs> <laughs> not wrong there. Uh, and I feel like the writer was trying to like get to these emotions that because he couldn't use like 
it didn't have to be all curse words, but like more appropriate. Like he wasn't able to use like more inappropriate language. It's it's sanitized, and that's what makes it feel hokey. So instead of saying like the real thing that the people would have said, they say something else instead. Yeah, and we should say I I've put a content warning up front, but this movie liberally uses the N word. It's used a total of seven times in the film, all directed at Virgil Tibbs. Well, see, like you just said, it used it a lot. That's seven right. times is nothing. Sorry. Like Django Unchained. How many times do they say it in there? Well, that's because Quentin Tarantino loves to say that word in movies. I, I know, but I'm just like, actually, <laughs> it's a horrible word. I shouldn't use it at all, ever. But to my point where I feel like the dialogues, they've tried to sanitize it. I feel like they should have used it more. I agree with you. The points where it sticks out the most are when Virgil is talking directly to Gillespie. They get a bit of speechifying in. Yes. And I here's the thing. If you aren't going to use that word very much because you're trying to like not use that word because it's a horrible word. Mm-hmm. Which I totally respect and understand because it's a horrible word. You have to be very careful about when you use it and who says it. And they didn't do that. Mm, I felt they were. I, I, I really do. I, I didn't get that. That didn't bother me. But I do agree that it gets it gets a little speechy. Mm-hmm. when those two in particular are talking to one another, especially yeah. about the crimes. And really, it gets speechy for Virgil. Like, that is the one character who I think has kind of the clunkiest writing. Yes. Because Gillespie always feels pitch perfect. Yeah, and I feel like they were trying to make them different, and they should have written them almost the exact same. I mean, Gillespie points that out in the movie. You're yeah. no different than us. You're you're the exact same as me. I feel like the thing about this story where they, sh- where they missed was that they should have had Tibbs dressed almost the exact same as Gillespie. He should talk almost the exact same as he does with the, you know, with that he's from Philadelphia. So like yeah. there's some of that stuff. And that's really what is like you, Gillespie, cannot get past the color of this man's skin. Y'all are the same fucking person. Yeah. And it it's not to say like you shouldn't see color because that's a terrible way of looking at things. But it is a oh shit, you have to recognize that your personalities are exactly the same. You cannot step away from the truth. Like basically the only thing that's different from you is that you have all this fucking privilege and this man does not. And it also just deepens Virgil's character. Yeah. Because otherwise Virgil is just a statue there to be representative of black experience. Well, and he's like that anyways. And I feel like if they they had not made Virgil this speechified dude- it would have hit the point home with Gillespie that like y'all are the same. He's obsessing about finding this murderer just the same way you will be. It it doesn't help that it's white people writing and making this movie. Oh, like that thing that we've been yelling about forever yeah. and like we're get we're getting much louder about now. Uh-huh. That thing? Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. That, that 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 was still true in nineteen sixty seven. If we were ever going to remake this movie, it needs to be an all black creative team. Yeah. Let's have Ryan Coogler do it. Ooh. That'd be ooh. great. That'd be, some, that'd be some good stuff. I, I would be fascinated to see it. Mm-hmm. All right. Our director is Norman Jewison. We've talked about him before with mm-hmm. Moonstruck. Moonstruck. But before this, he did Send Me No Flowers, The Cincinnati Kid, The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming. And after this, The Thomas Crown Affair from 1968, Fiddler on the Roof, Jesus Christ Superstar, Rollerball, Fist, and Justice for All. Agnes of God, Other People's Money, Only You, The Hurricane, and Dinner with Friends. Real wide range of work from this guy. Mm -hmm. He likes to just tackle unique 
different kinds of stories, and this one definitely falls in there. That's cool. We talked about the budget mm-hmm. and the fact that it all plays out really well. This is a really solidly directed movie. It is. And yeah, things get a little cheesy, but I feel that's more of the dialogue is a problem. Yeah. And, yeah. But, you know, it's performed decently enough. Like I said, this movie looks amazing. Yeah, it does. Considering that I think Bonnie and Clyde had roughly the same or a little more money to work with mm-hmm. and looks kind of like a dumpster fire. Yeah, but also Bonnie and Clyde is almost all outside. Yeah, it, it was all on location. And Bonnie and Clyde is also going for that aesthetic, but still. Yeah, it's supposed to be like just straight up white trash. But it's just still, you're like, wow, look at what you can do with that budget. Yeah. The film was actually made in Sparta, Illinois. Okay. At the insistence of Sidney Poitier. Okay. He and Harry Belafonte had almost been killed by Klansmen in Mississippi. Oh my, yeah. And so they briefly shot images of Endicott's cotton plantation in Tennessee because they could not find a similar location in the Midwest. That makes sense. But while they were there... Poitier slept with a gun under his pillow. And after receiving threats from local racists, the shoot was immediately cut and they moved back to Illinois. Yep. So, like, it's for real, real on the set of this movie. (laughs) Yeah, like, it's not cool. No, and it's- White people are the worst. It's why Poitier's performance is crackling with energy, Mm -hmm. because- Every inch of this he's seen and felt. Yeah, he's dealing with this shit. Like, this isn't just, this isn't, like, just a movie. Like, this is my life. Yeah. Like, there's no way that Sidney Poitier doesn't go to work as a performer and get this kind of garbage from other people. There's just, there's just no way. I loved him. And guess who's coming to dinner? Oh, he's He's really great in that movie. Mm -hmm. But the energy that he brings to this performance Mm -hmm. is just something different. Well, oh, it's a completely different character. And- the other one's written much better. It's true. It's just there's something fascinating and sparkling about what he's doing in this movie, even when it gets a little hammy and cheesy. Yeah. This is the first major studio film lit with consideration for an actor with dark skin. Yep. Haskell Wexler, the cinematographer, who is a notable cinematographer, realized that standard lighting would create too much glare. And so he reduced the lighting in order to bring out Sidney Poitier. Yeah, that's why he looks so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we talked about this with Moonlight and how like how beautifully everyone's lit in that. And then Issa Rae's show Insecure, they've had there's been so many talking pieces about how they've lit people of color, and it's just like it's it's a different process, which makes complete fucking sense. Yeah. And I just I love it, and it's it it is beautiful. I mean, Barry Barry Jenkins perfected it. That movie is exquisite. Uh, he just he elevated it. Oh yeah. In a sneak preview, Norman Jewison and editor of this film, Hal Ashby. Ooh, Hal Ashby. Who we talked about with Harold and Maude, mm-hmm. saw the young audience laughing at the dialogue. Yeah. Jewison was terrified. He was convinced that his dramatic film was suddenly a comedy. Oh, well, that's fair. And he was freaking out. And Ashby said, calm down. They're laughing at a Southern sheriff getting his comeuppance from Tibbs. That's what they think is funny. Yeah. And Jewison would not be convinced until the scene where Tibbs slaps Endicott. Mm-hmm. We were just trying to clarify some of the evidence. Was Mr. Colbert ever in this greenhouse, say, last night about midnight? 
And at that moment, the audience gasped in stunned silence. Yeah, because they knew what could have happened. It is the first time in a major studio film that a black man fights back against a white man with physical force. Yeah. And it's insane. It's awesome. You are not prepared for it at all. You're just kind of expecting him to, based on how they've played Tibbs at that point, you expect him to like take it and then speechify at him. Like, that's what you're expecting. And he just slaps him right back. It's like, all right, let's go. But in this in this wonderful way of he also does it because he knows that's going to get the response out of this guy that he wants. Mm-hmm. That's the magic of the character is that all of it is still about finding about out about this murder. He can't let it go. Mm-hmm. And that's what drives this whole conflict forward. Otherwise, he'd been out of there in five seconds. <laughs> but he can't give it up. Mm -hmm. All right. We talked about him so much. Our cast starts off with Sidney Poitier as Virgil Tibbs. Yep. Of course, his performance in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner inspired this whole series. It did. Before this, he was in Cry the Beloved Country, Blackboard Jungle, The Defiant Ones, Porgy and Bess, A Raisin in the Sun, Lilies of the Field, The Greatest Story Ever Told, and To Serve with Love this same year. He had three big deal movies come out this year. Yeah. After this, they call me Mr. Tibbs, the organization. He plays Virgil Tibbs in both. Uptown Saturday Night, a piece of the action, Sneakers. And his last film role before he retired was The Jackal. Fucking love Sneakers. (laughs) I say that every time it comes up because it's such an unusual film. And it was one of those like heist movies that I wasn't expecting. And I saw it when I was very young in the movie theater. That movie set me off on loving things like Ocean's Eleven the Italian job, anything where there's like some complicated heist. Poitier considers this his favorite film role of all time. Fair. According to Poitier, Tibbs' slap of Endicott wasn't in the original script. Mm. He actually insisted that he slap him back and he demanded and ensured that it was in all prints of the film. Mm. He did not want any theater owners cutting it. Good, because we see all that kind of crap happening now. Siliphant insists, however, that it was in the original script that he wrote. They only filmed it in two takes, and those slaps were real. Yeah, their editing is a little odd on them, but they, you can tell they're real. I mean, the slap isn't even that hard. It's, it's more of a disrespectful gesture. Yeah. And Jewison let the actor playing Endicott slap him for rehearsal to make sure it would be hard enough for the final cut. However... Despite all of the stuff that we said, hey, the South actually saw this movie, absorbed this movie. There wasn't a whole lot of violence around it. Like most of Sidney Poitier's films, this was banned by the South African Publications Control Board during apartheid. Mm. It was vocally anti-apartheid. South Africa banned his movies. Yeah, that sounds about right. They banned anybody's movies that didn't support them. And a lot of people didn't support them. So, hey. (sighs) Anyway, we're on record saying he's amazing in this movie. Yep. I don't think there's anything else to say. Let's move on to our next big deal actor, Rod Steiger as Gillespie. Gillespie. Before this, he was in On the Waterfront, 1955's Oklahoma, Al Capone, The Longest Day, and Dr. Zhivago. After this, The Illustrated Man, Waterloo, Duck You Sucker, Lucky Luciano, The Last Four Days, Jesus of Nazareth, The Amityville Horror, American Gothic, Tennessee Waltz, The Ballad of the Sad Cafe, Lots of Tennessee Williams stuff here. The Player, The Real Thing, Shiloh, Mars Attacks, Truth or Consequences, New Mexico, The Hurricane, and End of Days. I haven't seen any of those. (laughs) 
What do you think about Rod Steiger in this movie? He's great. He walks a very fine line with this dialogue between being like believable Southern sheriff guy that like is a stereotype for sure and being a cartoon character. And there are moments where he like he leans into the cartoon just a little bit, but in a very good way. He's doing it to highlight somebody else on screen. <laughs> yeah, it's to elevate the scene and, it, and it's also a little bit of like a relief. Yeah. He, like a, a like not so much comedic break, but just like He's a oh, pressure release. Yes. That's that's an appropriate word for it. He's still a dick. Like there's no like two ways about it. But it he's also just like, this is fucking like what the fuck is happening right now? I love that scene with them at his house. Mm-hmm. Where he's just drunk as a skunk. Yeah. Don't you get just a little lonely? No lonelier than you, man. Oh, now don't get smart, black boy. I don't need it. No pity, thank you. And I love that, like, it turns on a dime. He gets so mad, but not... At anything, he's like, don't say that to me. Don't give me pity. Mm-hmm. It's just like, ooh, ooh, that's so real. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I love is he can go from that cartoon straight into like super deep and raw. Mm-hmm. And it it's really good. <laughs> he was asked by Jewison to chew gum in the role. Hmm. It was the director's idea. He resisted at first, but he embraced it and went through 263 packs of gum while shooting the movie. That's a lot. Jewison directed him to base his performances off of the Dodge Sheriff, a spokesperson for Dodge Motor Vehicles in the 1960s. Okay. He did that, but he stripped away all of the comedic aspects of Mm. that character. Makes sense. So, inspiration comes from interesting places. True that. And he spoke for a southern accent for the duration of filming. Yeah, I get that. Like, doing an accent can be really hard. and. and especially because I think he's like a Jersey guy. Mm. So like trying to stay in Southern from that, I can imagine you just being like, I'm in this. I'm not I'm not getting out of this. Who could have been better? Hmm. George C. Scott. Oh, yeah, I see that. Was busy making the Flim Flam. <clears throat> the Flim Flam Man. And Lawrence Tierney. That would be Mara's father, Mara's father. who you oh, would yeah. only remember from Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, no, no. It, it took me a minute to be like, oh, that dude. <laughs> Either of those would be great, and like they all have a similar look, and they definitely have that ability. So, like, those are good choices, but like, I like who we got. So, yeah, I feel like Scott might have been just a little too on the grumpy side. I think he would have gone a little too Shakespeare with this. Yeah, like, that's definitely pro- him. Probably a little over processed, whereas the other dude would probably probably been more of the super angry guy. Yeah, and a little more mumbly. Mm-hmm. That would have been okay. He just, he wouldn't have had that swagger and bluster. He wouldn't have been able to do the cartoon. Yeah. There's just something magical that Steiger came up with, so. Mm, There's a a good middle. Mm Mm-hmm. Warren Oates as Sam Wood. Okay, that's the deputy guy? Yes. Okay. Before this, he did tons of television and Return of the Magnificent Seven. After this, he got his big break in The Wild Bunch, Sam Peckinpah's movie, and he became Peckinpah's guy. 
He did Tulane Blacktop, Dillinger, Badlands, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, 1941. And you would most remember him as Sergeant Hulka in Stripes. Yeah, because I remember Stripes so well. That's the that's their drill sergeant. Yeah. <laughs> Lighten up, Francis. What'd you think about Warren Oates in this movie? Uh, he's good. He's wildly different from Gillespie, which is good. And I feel like when we meet him, you think he's going to be the problem or you think, oh, he, this is going to be the guy who's cool with Tibbs and Gillespie is going to be horrible. And it's like, no. Yeah. Well, you do that. Then you think, well, maybe he's the killer. And then it turns out, oh, it's neither of those. Yeah. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> he's just kind of battered around as a plot point, but <laughs> a little bit of misdirection. To his credit, he does a really good job making a character. Yeah. And making you care about what happens to him. Mm -hmm. Lee Grant as Mrs. Colbert. Before this, she did Detective Story, The Balcony, Peyton Place, and Divorce American Style. After this, Valley of the Dolls, Marooned, Plaza Suite, Shampoo, Voyage of the Damned, Airport 77, Omen 2, Damien, The Swarm, Defending Your Life, Dr. T and the Women, and Mulholland Drive. Mm. I mean, she's in the movie for like five minutes. I know. Like, she's a big name in terms of the credits they're getting. She's not in the movie enough. And you know, honestly, if we'd had more interaction with her throughout the movie mm -hmm. and less of the speechiness. Yes. That might have been the balance we were that missing. That would have been better. Yeah. Because every time she's on camera, she's interesting. She's an she interesting is. dynamic. Yeah. She's a wrench in the middle of this town. Mm-hmm. And she's gone for half the movie. Steiger, in particular, praised her performance as one of his favorite in cinema. Okay. I don't know. Maybe on set, it was even more impactful. Okay, but no. <laughs> That's it for the main actors. On to Arpon. We have Larry Gates as Endicott. He was in Invasion of the Body Snatchers and Cat in the Hot Tin Roof before this. Okay. He's got a lots of big credits. So he's a well-known guy. William Schallert as Mayor Schubert. Okay. Seemingly mealy mouth guy, but my gosh, he started with Mighty Joe Young and ended with Beethoven's second. Oh, wow. Like, he's got 400 credits. Holy shit. He's an acting dude. He's in Singing in the Rain. Aw, I love Singing in the Rain. So, I mean, he's, good. he's a good guy. Oh, and Gremlins. I should add Gremlins. Oh, okay. Movies that we've seen him in. Those are the movies we've seen him in, but we didn't realize it. <laughs> Bea Richards as Mama Kaleba. Did you recognize her? No. This is the same lady who plays Sidney Poitier's mother in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Oh, okay. Same actress. Same actress. That's funny. And she's great in the three minutes she's on screen. She's very good. She's, I love I love what they do with that scene. I, I do too. And I like that. It's like, you realize you're just making trouble. Like, why would you do this? Yeah. And, you know, then he then he lays it down. He's like, because I can't let this go. Nope. They've got they're going to put somebody in jail for life. And I can't let that let that slide. Got to be the right person. Mm hmm. Larry D. Mann as Watkins. He is the bald guy who's like smirking at Tibbs getting killed while they're having the town meeting. OK, we've seen him before as the train conductor in The Sting. <laughs> Arthur Mallet as Ulam, the coroner guy. He's in Halloween, and we've mentioned him in a bunch of different things. He was also in Hook, I believe. Okay. Scott Wilson as Harvey Oberst. Yeah. Oh, man. He's a little baby. We've talked about Scott Wilson in Monster and the Right Stuff. Oh, yeah, he is in the right stuff. And 
we're going to be talking about him very soon in In Cold Blood. In fact, this is his debut film. And right almost after comes In Cold Blood because his performance was so impressive in this movie Mm -hmm. that Poitier recommended him for that role. I love it. And Wilson never knew about this until getting cast in In Cold Blood. Oh, okay, cool. So like this was a, hey, this kid is good. Put him in the movie. He is great. And like Tay's like, do you know who it is? Do you know who it is? And I'm looking at him and I was like, trying to figure it out. And then he just blurts it. I was like, no, I wanted to figure it out. Because <laughs> it's his mouth. He has a very like flat faced mouth. And like, I don't, like, it's not a bad thing. It's just, it's very distinctive on his face. I just, who would have thought that fucking Herschel, like we loved Herschel. Even though we broke up with Walking Dead, he was always a bright spot on that show. Herschel was one of the best things on that show. And then I never would have known what a prolific actor he was and how good he was. He's in this movie for all of 10 minutes and he eats it up every time he's on screen. I love it. We have Jester Hairston as the butler at Endicott's plantation. Mm-hmm. He worked on Amos and Andy both on radio and television. Oh, wow. That's amazing. So he was a well known performer. And finally, Alan Oppenheimer as Ted Appleton, which I think is the other Chicago partner. He is a prolific voice actor voicing Skeletor on He-Man and Falcor and other voices in The NeverEnding Story. Oh, wow. So, big deal there. All right, trivia. The sheriff's house scene was completely improvised between Poitier and Steiger, which, yeah. goddamn, <laughs> when you have two actors that good. Yes, yeah, great. <laughs> Because the film was made in fall in Illinois, but set in a hot Mississippi summer, Mm -hmm. the actors had to keep ice chips in their mouths and spit them out between takes to stop their breath from appearing on camera during the night scenes. (laughs) Maybe that's why there's some of the mumbling and stultiness in the dialogue. I could believe that. Because their mouths are numb. (laughs) And also, that's like a horrible thing to do. It actually like makes you more cold. Yeah. Like you should never do that. I know. And- I don't think it was for any other reason than it's just not going to look right. Mm -hmm. The greenhouse, which was added to an existing house, was filled with $15,000 worth of orchids. That's a lot of orchids. They were beautiful orchids for a very, very horrible message. Jewison and Wexler stated that Henshaw actually danced to the song Little Red Riding Hood in the diner, but they weren't able to license it so that's why we get this weird ass knockoff i was like this is such a bad knockoff of little red riding hood oh that's why mm-hmm. warren oates and lee grant were vocal advocates for the civil rights movement despite portraying pretty racist characters in the film well, that's good i think everybody in this film was very pro civil rights it would be very hard to do a movie like this and not be like this is horrible yeah. It just, I hope. I hope everybody was like, yay, civil rights, let's do this. I just, th- again, this movie isn't perfect, but it does something that Green Book never did, which is a, it points out completely the white people are the problem here. Mm-hmm. Like, it does not shy away from pointing it out. Whether or not it's completely successful in getting across that full message It at least does that. It does. And a lot of movies don't do that now. Correct. (laughs) Reportedly, this is Danny Glover's favorite movie of all time. Okay. That is true trivia right there, folks. All right. And Virgil claims that he's not married in this movie, 
but in the sequels, he's been married for several years. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. All right. Our awards. This was nominated for seven Academy Awards. Okay. Best Picture, Best Actor for Rod Steiger only. Hmm. Best Adapted Screenplay, mm-hmm. Best Sound, Best Film Editing, Best Director, and Best Sound Effect. Which I will give some credit. This movie does have really good sound. Hmm. And the music is very good, too. That's a whole other aspect to get into. But Quincy Jones does an amazing score for this movie. Okay, so I would have liked Sidney Poitier to have been recognized for this film. But given the fact that he's in another film that got super recognized, I kind of get it. Yeah. And also, I, we talked about some of that speechifying. Mm-hmm. I think that might be where the Academy it, caught it. It worked It worked against him. It worked against him. And instead, they saw Steiger and went, holy shit. <laughs> So, you know, and what was it, 94? Holly Hunter and Emma Thompson were both nominated in the Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress categories. Sometimes you're that good. You're that good in two different films in the same year. All right. Ratings. Ratings. Do we go slices of pie? Orchid. Mmm. Mmm. I mean, I love me some pie. <laughs> no, Orchids. Orchids is much more poignant for this movie. How many orchids are you going to give this film? Okay. I'm going to go with my first instinct. I'm going to go with a three. Ooh, that is tough. I really don't like the dialogue at all. And I think it ruins a lot of the movie. And then I feel like the actors are compensating for it. So, like, actors are doing a great job. They're great. Director directed good. Cinematography is good. But but I feel like that's all in spite of the dialogue. So, that's my, that's like, that's what's like my hitch. And I'm trying to be really good about like, what's my first instinct? Yeah. My first instinct was a three. So yeah. That's fair. I'm going to give it a four. Yeah. It did not bother me in that way. I knew you were going to give it a four. <laughs> and it, I really just, I was digging it. I was into it. I was into how impactful it felt mm-hmm. and how and how direct and blunt it felt because I miss that a lot in movies these days. Mm-hmm. You don't always have to be nuanced and try to tell every side of a story. You can be blunt force with it. Be like, no, these people are awful. Let's Mm -hmm. talk about it. Yeah. And then we'll get into the complexity of that after we talk about that. It just, it really captured me. It's not a perfect movie though. So I think a four. Okay. Well, next up, it's your movie. It's my movie. Yeah. This is one of the few films of this. I think it's the only one that I've actually seen. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so it's my movie, and of course it's the musical. We're doing Thoroughly Modern Millie. Woo! It's a nice breather. It's a nice. It is a nice breather from the heavy. There's still some heavy shit and some like not cool fucking shit in there. We'll get into it. We'll get into it, and then also we have to talk for like a hot moment about the 2002 musical because I fucking love that. <laughs> so yeah, I'm really I'm excited. But before we get out of here, we gotta go talk about new movies. Let's do it. This week, we watched the two longest movies for the Oscars. First, we watched The Irishman. A mob hitman recalls his friend, Jimmy Hoffa. Ego, the movie. (laughs) I mean, yes. However, I will say, the more time I've had thinking about this movie, the more I kind of like it. I like the story. I like the story. And I agree, it's it's overlong, it's bloated. This is just a case of no one saying no. Well, yeah, Re- I mean... It, it, it really is. Nobody should have funded this as a movie. 
And nobody should have funded the CGI. They should have said, <laughs> fuck no. Just, I mean, that that just, is the biggest problem. <laughs> the CGI is not is not bad. I will say that. It's not bad. It's a little distracting in the beginning because it's just so obviously jarring against the Robert De Niro we know. And then you kind of just get used to it and you don't care. But, you know, it's almost offensive to me that they spent that much money to make a bunch of old dudes who all have Oscars. None of these men need shit from this project. They could have not been paid a dime, paid for the movie themselves out of their fuck you money. <laughs> and they decided we're going to, we're going to, instead, we're not going to find the actors who everyone is saying is the next Nero Pacino Pesci. Because they're out there. Those guys are out there. They could have found them and had them play the younger versions of themselves. That's what we've been doing since cinema began. Well, you only need it for about an hour too, right? I mean, for me, part of the problem with this movie is story-wise, it doesn't get interesting until Hoffa shows up. It just doesn't. <sighs> like the whole origin story of De Niro's character, while necessary- It is necessary, but it could have been truncated. It's like Goodfellas, you only need about 15, 20 minutes- and then we're good. Get to Hoffa. And I got to say this, though. Pacino and Pesci are doing really good work. Pacino's good, but he's not doing anything I haven't seen from him. Pesci is so restrained. And he doesn't play that very often. What's great about Pacino's performance isn't necessarily that he's doing anything different. It's that he still has that in him. Because for a lot of us, it's like, oh, he's gone way off the deep end. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, he can still do that if he needs to. He can still do that good of a performance. That was just the nice thing about being like, hey, Al Pacino really still is a great actor. He just, you know, he doesn't always choose those projects. This is just ego, the movie. It's really how it feels to me. I do really, I did really like Pesci, though. So I, I don't feel as mad about his nomination. While I do agree that it's overdone mm -hmm. and bloated, I, the main story beats I actually really enjoy, especially the tail end of this movie. It has something Agreed. really interesting to say that Scorsese hasn't touched on yet. Mm -hmm. And I really enjoyed that part of it. So it's it's kind of messy, but I don't think it's like the worst thing he's ever done. No, but it doesn't deserve the Oscar consideration. Not really. No. And also, this isn't a movie. This is a miniseries. <laughs> I, I, no, but it is because it would have worked really well as a two-part miniseries or even a three or four and then you could have fleshed out some more stuff that you know they cut. It's based on a book called I Hear You Paint Houses. Mm -hmm. I actually, many years ago when I used to work at the bookstore, I was in charge of special orders. So I did that for a long time. And we had this customer came in and he he was a really nice person. And one day he's just like, hey, you know, I don't know much about this, but there's a book I've been looking for. And he, ex he was explaining the story. And I was just like, okay, okay. And he's like, it's about Jimmy Hoffa. And I'm like, all right, all right. And he's like, the, he's like, I don't know what the name of it is. And he's like, but it's something, something. I hear you paint houses. And I was like, all right, okay. So I did a little research and I found the book. It was out of print and I was able to find him a copy and he was super excited. And I was like, that's actually really interesting. And it has been on my list to want to read for years. I still haven't read it. But I just was like, oh, that's kind of fun. That, that kind of made me like that much more curious. Also, this movie should not have been called The Irishman. It should have been called I Hear You Paint Houses. I think that's a that's a Netflix decision. If we're going to fork over this money and we're making it a movie that's more intelligible. No, they didn't. They did not do that. Hmm? They threw a ton of money down the drain. <laughs> it's not that bad. <laughs> you know who did throw a bunch of money down the drain? Are the producers of our next film. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood.
A faded television actor and his stunt double strive to achieve fame and success in the film industry during the final years of Hollywood's golden age in 1969 Los Angeles. There is a really good movie in this movie. Uh Uh-huh. That's not the movie we saw. No. I will say this. Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt in these roles kick ass. Those two together, amazing. Brad Pitt in this role, awesome. Brad Pitt doesn't play funny a lot. He plays pretty and he plays hardened. He doesn't play jaded a whole lot. He's phenomenal. He can get it. I mean, man's 55 years old. Hot as he was when he was 20. He just is. I will say, if I'm going to pick one of these two guys, because Leo's doing amazing work too. This And same thing for Leo. He has not played this type of role in years. Easy. He's been chasing an Oscar. And this was really fun for him. Those two together, great. Yeah. And Brad, honestly, is the one who deserves even more of the accolades. Agreed. For just being a total badass and the most interesting thing on screen the entire time. Yeah, I will say that Brad is probably my number two pick for the supporting actor. He's really good. He really really is that good. Yeah. Now, the rest of the movie is hot, hot garbage. Oh, man. You could cut an hour out of this film. No problem. It's racist as shit and it's bullshit. All the hype around this movie is hot, hot bullshit. Oh, yeah. Because they keep trying to set this shit up. Like, this is because you know what's coming. You know what's coming with the Mansons. Then they don't do it. (laughs) So, like, so why did, like, why did you use the people's names? You could have named her, you know, Karen Fate, and you would have known who he was alluding to. But you make this whole thing about it being Sharon Tate, and then you don't do the thing that happens. So, for me... The more that I thought about it, Mm -hmm. I am actually okay with most of the story beats of this movie. The rough outline of this movie makes sense. However, number one, Sharon Tate should not be featured in any form or fashion. It actually feels like it cheapens the legacy of Sharon Tate and what she represented in Hollywood to make her such a featured player in this. Now, us doing an alt-universe and having real characters in that alt-universe is fine to me. Like, having Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski be in that neighborhood Mm -hmm. adds a little bit of tension and drama that's interesting. And then there is a catharsis you can get from them going to the other house. Like, there's something about that that's kind of inglorious bastards and good. But it takes two hours to get to that point. The last 40 minutes of this movie starts moving, at least. But we spend two hours doing nothing. And to me, it was... Every scene was fine as a scene, but it needed to move like 250% faster. Mm -hmm. There is no reason for us to take as much goddamn time as we do with these scenes. No, there's only a few where it makes sense or it's funny. And the rest of it is just, oh, dear God. Especially anytime other than the FBI episode, anytime we have Leo being in a movie, We don't need to see that much of it. No. We don't need to see a full fucking scene of him in Great Escape. Cut twice to it and make the joke and move on. Yeah. And it's it's just Tarantino being lazy and nobody telling him no. Like, you want to talk about the Irishman totally does have that, but this one offended me more because it was like, dude, I know you can make movies better than this. And I know you can make movies that have more coherent stories and through lines than this. You just farted out a movie on a page and then said, here's my ode to Hollywood. Fuck you. Who are you to tell us what Hollywood is anymore, Quentin? Mm -hmm. Like, this one's 
patently more offensive to me because it doesn't actually represent shit. And if he'd taken the time to actually craft it and mold it and edit it, it could have been a really cool movie. (laughs) Mm -hmm. This is another one that makes me want to go re-edit it. Because literally, if you narrow it down to just the scenes with Leo and Brad, or the scenes that directly involve their characters, and you edit out a little bit of the back and forth with Brad's character at the ranch. Yeah. This movie's pretty kick-ass. You don't need anything else. And it's like, oh, okay, this is once upon a time in Hollywood. There are these two guys who have this really amazing friendship and this crazy fucked up thing happened. That story is interesting. It hits all the things you want. And to me, plot-wise, it's like having Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski be there makes sense. But having Sharon be this prominent character in mm-hmm. the movie doesn't. It's Oscar Beatty in like the purest way. And no shade to Margot Robbie, who I think is trying her best to just be Sharon Tate. And she's a phenomenal actress. She is. And she's not doing anything bad here, but it's just unnecessary. You just needed somebody who could look like Sharon Tate to be there yep. and be in the background. Yep. And then for the whole thing to be like, oh, my God, that's crazy. How could that have happened? Mm-hmm. And then it's fun (laughs) yeah then it's like it's a wink and a nod without like this giant like we're gonna spend all of our time on this and you it's just it was bad it's not good Mm -hmm. severely disappointing and it's two hours and 45 minutes yeah it wasn't worth it god well that is seven plus hours of movie watching yep good god At least the rest of our nominees seem to have maybe a little more coherence and interestingness to them. Mm -hmm. But um, don't don't bother. I mean, maybe The Irishman. If you're a Scorsese fan, go watch it. You'll you'll enjoy parts of it. Otherwise, don't bother. Nope, don't bother. It's not worth it. Until next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. (laughs) 